I know why you and I fall so far short as missionaries. And I'm using that term broadly, simply as witnesses for Christ. I know why you and I fall short. We don't make Him known freely as He wants us to make Him known because we don't know Him fully as He wants us to know Him. I can give you so many examples from the Bible of this, but I, so I think that our problem is we're looking for, for fruit and we're expecting fruit where we have little root. Very often we're putting the cart before the horse. We cannot expect to make Jesus known well, freely, if we don't first know him. Knowing Christ is putting down our roots deep, as Ryan was preaching a few weeks ago from Psalm 1. Putting our roots down deep into the nourishing stream, the life-giving water of God that we have in Christ. Knowing Him, pressing into Christ. To know Him biblically, deeply, and intimately, personally. Those things are not in conflict with each other, as so many people think. To know Him biblically, deeply, and intimately, personally. They go together. And when we know Him as He wants us to know Him, we will make Him known. So it's the root and then the fruit. Then the branches will spread out. Then the fruit will go larger and more abundant. That's, you know, the whole putting the the horse before the cart as we ought to. We know Him first and then we make Him known. And as I said, we, I can give you many examples from Scripture. I'll give you one. Isn't this what happened with Isaiah the prophet? He said that in the year that King Uzziah died, he saw the Lord high and lifted up, sitting on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Now I submit to you that who Isaiah saw was the second person of the Trinity, our Lord Jesus Christ, God the Son. This is clear, I believe, from Scripture in John chapter 12. John identifies that it was Christ whom Isaiah saw. It's also clear just from the witness of Scripture. God the Son is the eternal generation of the Father. That's part of what makes Him the Son. He is the eternal generation of the Father and as the Son also the eternal revelation of the Father. He is the image of the invisible God. No one has seen God at any time, John said in his first chapter. The only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. It was Jesus whom Isaiah saw some 700 years before Christ came. He saw Him high and lifted up, sitting on a throne. The train of His robe filled the temple. The trailing edge of His glory filled the temple, shook the the temple to its foundations, and shook Isaiah to the core of his being. He wailed on account of his own sin and the sin of his people. And then, to no surprise to those who know that our God is the Gospel God, the Good News God, There was mercy for Isaiah and atonement for his sin. And then, when the call came to him, 
call came, well, this is what the Lord said in Isaiah 6, 8. It says, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send? And who will go for us? Then I said, here I am. Send me. Of course, he rushed to fill the position because he has just seen the Lord Jesus Christ in his glory, in his creation transcending holy, holy, holiness. And he has received for himself mercy, creation transcending glory, and individual personal mercy. He has seen these things as he has never seen or known them before. He has seen God. He has, he knows God as he has never known him before. So when the call comes, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Isaiah rushes to fill the position because as we know him, we make him known. Let's look at verses 5 and 6 of Colossians 4. Hear the word of the Lord. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Let's focus on that first clause in verse 5. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders. What's the key word there? Wisdom. This is the way that we should approach and have relationship with unbelievers. The key thing that we need is wisdom. But what is wisdom? Where do we find the wisdom that we need to rightly relate and to have effective evangelistic relationships with those who are yet outside the saving grace of God? Well, we would be quick to answer, of course, that we need God's wisdom, as opposed to the wisdom of the world, wisdom from heaven and not from men. But that's, I think, even though that's right, you're you're waiting for me to say but, right? That's right, but we need to be more specific. We need to narrow our focus, I think, the way that Paul wants us to. What is this wisdom specifically? Now, I hope that you are beginning to pick up on something I've stressed over the last few months, particularly in Colossians, about a sound interpretive method. How do we know what Paul means by this word? And here, in this case, of course, it's wisdom. How do we know what he means? The the last place that we really want to look is, you know, an English dictionary. Because even though it might give us a decent definition of wisdom, we're looking for a biblical definition. And so, as we often stress, we should look at context, right? We look at the context of how the word is being used in that particular paragraph. But even more, I think, than that, we need to trace the theme in this letter itself. How is Paul using this word wisdom in his letter to the Colossians. And this is one of the key words. It becomes a theme throughout the letter. Wisdom, knowledge, and understanding. Those three things together are given to us often in Colossians. So, I'd like to walk through a few verses 
and use them to, to help us to understand what this wisdom is that we need for rightly relating to unbelievers. Would you go back to chapter 1 and verse 9? Paul begins that paragraph saying that ever since he had heard of the faith of the Colossians, he and Timothy had been praying for them nonstop. And what were they asking for? Verse 9, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So where is spiritual wisdom and understanding found? It's in the knowledge of God's will. Okay, so we're beginning to narrow things. Where is the wisdom that we need to rightly relate to the world around us? It's in the knowledge of God's will. But still, that is pretty broad, isn't it? We need to even more narrowly focus. And so Paul goes on to show us, as we have said over and over and over again throughout this letter. So you better, if you have been here from week to week, you better remember this. I would be really angry. Now, yeah, I probably would be angry. Um, what is the will of God that he is focusing on, that we must be filled with the knowledge of? It's his will concerning Christ. It's, it's not man-centered. It's Christ-centered. It is God's will that his Son, who is his very image, be preeminent in everything. From the very beginning in the first creation which Jesus made by speaking to the new creation in the end which Jesus made by dying, Christ is to be all, overall, everything in creation reconciled to Himself to be united under His Lordship. That's God's will for all of history. That's His aim for all things in all history that Jesus Christ be preeminent. Christ Overall. So what must we know then in all spiritual wisdom? The answer is simple, but it's profound. God's wisdom is Christ. We must know Christ. I can prove it again. I think, uh, and, and possibly make it a little bit easier. Look, look down. In at the toward the end of chapter one, verse twenty-eight, we're talking about making Jesus known, right? And we're we're looking at how we relate to people in the proclamation of the gospel with wisdom. Look at how these ideas are connected in verse twenty-eight. Paul says, "Him we proclaim." Look look at the end of verse twenty-seven. He was talking about Christ, so that's who the Him is. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom. There's the connection. Christ making Him known wisdom. So as we walk in wisdom toward outsiders, we're talking about knowing Christ. Look down at chapter 3, verse 16. See another key time that Paul uses this word wisdom. And again, we're going to see verse 16. He's using it in the context of making Jesus known. He says, let the word of Christ 
dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. So we have making Christ known, attached to wisdom. And then finally, probably the easiest one to see how Paul is using this word would be back in chapter 2, beginning of the chapter, verse 3. Paul is talking here about how he has laid his life down so that you and I may reach all the riches of knowing Christ. That's the last word of verse 2. Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So every time that Paul is using the word wisdom in this letter, it is attached to Christ. So back to now chapter 4, verse 5. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders. How should we relate to the unbelievers around us? We must know Christ. It's our knowledge of Christ that informs all of our relationship to them, our attitude, our approach, the words that we say, what we intend, how we are ministering. It's all informed by Christ. Christ himself is the wisdom of God. So Paul is not just saying to us when he says walk in wisdom, he, understand, he is not just saying watch what you say and how you say it and when and all of that good common sense stuff. He is saying know Christ. There is no true wisdom of how to relate to outsiders and make Jesus known to them except we know Jesus. Know him biblically, deeply as you can and personally, intimately as possible. For when you know Him to the full, you will not be able to contain Him. He will be from your life like a river spilling over its banks. And you will display Christ. In your attitude and your approach to people, Jesus is going to be on display. As you... In your love and joy and peace and long-suffering and kindness and goodness, in your faithfulness and your gentleness and your self-control, you will, just in your attitude and approach to people, you will display Christ. And then not only in attitude, but also in words, in timely gospel words. The sum of which is, here is our message to the world, be reconciled to God. For our sake, He made Him who knew no sin to be sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. So in our attitude toward people and in our words toward people, we are going to display witness to who Jesus is. The best way to the right approach to unbelievers is to reach all the riches of knowing Christ. Let me borrow some of the phrases that Paul uses in Colossians. Walk in Him as you received Him. Be rooted in Christ and built up in Him. Seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Be renewed in knowledge after the image of Christ. Let the Word of Christ dwell in you so richly that whatever you do in word or deed be to His honor and glory. 
You do everything in His name. We're going to fall short in this, and that's one of the reasons why, as I said earlier, we feel guilty. We're going to fall short in displaying Christ. But we have the grace of Christ always to make Christ our singular aim. And when He is our aim, as we know Him, biblically, deeply, and intimately, personally, He transforms you profoundly. And what will happen is that you're not going to regard people the same old way. You're going to see them as Christ does. You're not going to regard them according to the flesh, as Paul put it in 2 Corinthians 5. You're not going to look at people just and judge them based on surface appearances. But you're going to look at them as who they are deeply and their relationship to Jesus, whether they are in Him or they do not yet belong to Him. And you will regard people and you will treat people not just as you know that Jesus would regard them and treat them, but when you know Him yourself intimately and deeply, fully, you're going to treat them as you know Jesus has treated you. And you will regard them as you know that Christ has regarded you. And you will go to them as you know that Christ came to you. When you know Him yourself fully, we will freely make Him known. Paul says there at the end of verse 5, making the best use of the time. Making the best use of the time doesn't mean that you tell an outsider how to become an insider every single time that you are with them, assuming that this is an ongoing relationship. But it does mean that you are always a gospel witness. Always. A couple months ago, as we were talking together as church members about your next pastor, um, some of the discussions that were coming up were, well, what about this and what about that? And one of the whatabouts was, what about Ryan's relationship to, to everyone in the church that he is, you know, a family member to 90% of us? Big exaggeration, but it's still a lot. <laughs> about 50%, I would say. So what about that? And my response was, well, Ryan's going to have to have the sense to know when to take off the pastor's hat in, you know, in family matters with issues that might come up. Sometimes he'll very often he'll have to take off the pastor's hat and just put on the, the grandson hat or the, the nephew hat or cousin hat or whatever the case may be being related to half the population of Washtenaw Parish. And, and that's common sense because when I go home and, you know, I'm, with my kids. I'm daddy. I'm not, you know, brother Mike. <laughs> I'm not the, you know, their pastor um, in that official capacity sense. Um, my point is that even as we have to take off whatever hats we wear from time to time, you know, the job hat, whatever it is, or certain relationship, you, you never take off the Christian bearing witness to Christ hat. That's what it means to make the best use of our time. That we are always displaying Christ. 
there is a time to speak and there is a time to be silent, but we are always displaying Christ. That's how we make the best use of our time. We never stop displaying Jesus. Our lives are a vapor. God has given you this time and this place for just a little while. Our lives are a vapor and our opportunities are few and Christ's return is impending. So who do you know that needs to hear the good news of Jesus? Who are you praying for? Pray for, let me give you, uh, let me give you seven things. You don't have to write these down because they're going to be pretty easy to remember. Number one, as I've been saying, press into Christ. Number two, pray. Pray for the unbelievers around you, your neighbors, your friends, your co-workers, this community. Pray for the nations as we were singing. Let the nations be glad. May the peoples praise you. Pray. Pray for an opportunity for the word. Pray for clarity of the word. Number three, press unto Christ. Number four, plan. Be intentional. We were talking about this a little bit in Sunday school this morning. We have to be intentional. We have to keep this at the forefront of our thinking, our identity as witnesses for Jesus. Plan. Number five, press into Christ. Number six, proclaim Him. Actually open your mouth and tell people the good news of Jesus Christ. Use, uh, I'm not going to talk much about it, that, that outline that I often bring up, God, man, Christ response. Use that to, to frame your, your presentation of the gospel, not in a rote outline, of course. Try not to. I've, I've felt like a robot sometimes as I've recalled to people the outline. But actually proclaim Christ. And then number seven, press into Christ. From first to last, press into Jesus. Know Him fully, that you may proclaim Him freely. Let's look at verse 6. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Um, okay, there's a, an interpretive issue here. What does Paul mean by gracious speech? And the way that we often use this word is, oh, he speaks very graciously. We mean he speaks eloquently. He's got wit, you know, quick words, deep thinking. It just flows out of him naturally. I don't think that this is what gracious speech is. You know why? Because Paul often talks about how uneloquent he is. When you read his two letters to the Corinthians, he, he admits he's rather self-deprecating, very humble about his speech, that there's little of what the world would call eloquence in his speech. And if we look at what how Paul uses the word grace in Colossians, I think we come to a very different definition of what gracious speech is. And let me add to that by saying, I don't think Paul is saying two different things when he says, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt. I think he's just saying the same thing two different ways. So I believe that gracious speech is speech that is reflective of the God of grace and the gospel of grace. 
And that is the speech that is seasoned with salt because there are no more beautiful, compelling, and winsome words in all the world than the words of the good news of God in Jesus. The gospel words are the most winsome, appealing words in all the world. That's gracious speech seasoned with salt. So let me give you a couple of things. We reflect the grace of God in our speech, in our choice of words, which I'll get to in a moment, as well as in our tone. It has to do with your word content and your tone. Several weeks ago, I was telling you about one of the most helpful tips that I've received as a preacher. It had to do not with content, but with tone. So, see, throughout the scriptures, God adopts a certain tone. For example, Psalm 23 is very comforting. It's soothing to the people of God. So you can't preach Psalm 23 accurately and blast people. See, uh, I saw a few eyes getting heavy, so I thought I'd blast you. I'm not preaching the text rightly if I preach Psalm 23 like that, right? I might, the content might be right, but the tone just throws everything off. So does your tone, is your tone reflective of the grace of God? Is it reflective of His grace? Now let's be clear about this. It doesn't mean your tone is always going to be soothing and comforting. Let's say that you are witnessing to someone who has been a friend of yours for a very long time, who as as long as you have known them rejected Christ, and just recently they have been given a few days to live. Are you just going to speak to them nice and calmly about the gospel? Or are you going to plead with them? You must accept Christ, or you're going to be eternally lost. And then you may be witnessing to someone that you have just met for the first time and you're having a first conversation about religious matters. Well, you're going to speak in a much different tone. It's going to be calmer than that other situation. One thing we know about our tone is that the Bible never justifies quarreling. Never justifies quarreling. That doesn't mean not debating, but just quarreling with people and having that quarreling spirit and tone. Sometimes, but rarely, the Bible justifies anger. So it's very important that we have a common sense kind of wisdom to know the occasion and know the person and know what is called for. But our tone must be reflective in gracious speech of the grace of God and the gospel of grace. Second, gracious speech seasoned with salt as it doesn't mean eloquence, has a lot to do with our word content. Paul says, the last thing he says in verse 6 is, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. We should form the content of our gospel words to fit each person and occasion. So you have to know people. You have to know where they are. And the better that you know them, the better that you will be able to show them how the gospel meets them on their level. I'm not saying you have to know every single person in your life intimately in order to be able to explain the gospel well to them. But you can use Jesus and Paul both as excellent examples of knowing their audience and knowing how the gospel meets them on their level. When Jesus was talking to one large group of people, 
he identified two, um, two kinds of people that he was addressing. There were the tax collectors and sinners who fit into his story as the prodigal types, the younger brother who runs away from the father with his money and spends it all lavishly and wastes it all completely until he's reduced to nothing, the end of his rope. And then there is the older brother, the Pharisees, the religious establishment who are self-righteous, who think that they simply naturally belong by their own good works and have no need of a Savior. And he tells them one story about the love of the Father and how the love of the Father comes to both of them and the love of the Father draws both of them in. God wants both in. You know, I really think, I've been thinking about this for a few months now, that we could use that story with so many different kinds of people. You know, we have verses like John 3.16 and Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, which Diane quoted in Sunday school this morning, and Romans 5, 8 and 6.23 and all of those verses, 10, 9 and 10 and so on, what we call the Romans road. But we have Jesus used stories and we have one already there for us that meets so many people where they are in their spiritual need. We show how the gospel comes to them on their level. Paul also did this. It it seems to me that Paul perhaps wasn't a... Maybe... uh, Why am I saying this? This is just a guess. I, I just wonder if Paul... One of the reasons that he struggled for eloquence was he wasn't just that storyteller. We don't see a lot of stories in Paul's messages. Uh, His words are very powerful, obviously, supernaturally so. Um, But anyway, Paul had a different tactic than with people, I I think. You can see it in Acts as he's preaching to the Jews. Here are these people who he has so much in common with. And what do they have in common? But they have the same Bible. And so he shows them how Jesus is the fulfillment of all of the promises of the Old Testament that they know and love and that they're putting hope in. And he's saying, Christ is it. Christ is the fulfillment of all the promises of God. You killed him, but he is raised from the dead and salvation is offered to you freely in his name. And then he had a completely different approach to the Gentiles. And we saw one of those this morning in Acts 13. You know, there were these people who were rushing to him and Barnabas wanting to offer sacrifices to them because Paul had healed someone and they said, well, Paul and Barnabas are gods. And so Paul responded to them by preaching to them God. But he didn't preach from the Old Testament scriptures um, explicitly like he would to the Jews. He began to talk about a creator, one living God who created all things, all the world and everything in it. And then he would show Gentiles often how God had appointed this man, Jesus, to be judge of the living and the dead, who was killed but was raised on the third day to offer salvation to all who would believe in him. You see how Jesus and Paul both formed their words, the content of their message, to meet people where they are. And so as Paul says, Have that speech that is gracious and seasoned with salt so you may know how you ought to answer each person. Our tone matters and our content both matter. I had a chance about a month ago to witness to a friend of mine 
who um, so obviously he's an unbeliever and one of the things that comes up in conversation a lot is his relationship with his family and how he has been deeply scarred by his relationship with his parents. So as we're talking about this, I am praying, Lord, give me words to share with him that will, where the gospel can meet him where he is. And the Lord, as soon as I prayed this, brought Psalm 27 to mind. And so I quoted these words to him. Cast me not off. Forsake me not, O God of my salvation. For my father and my mother have forsaken me. But the Lord will take me in. And I said to him, I'm not going to give you these platitudes. I'm not going to give you these moralisms. This is the core. You need Christ. And I wish I could tell you that I had this you know, great conversion story, but truth is he walked away from the conversation right when I said that. But still, it's true. If you get into people's lives and you know them, their needs, and you know the Scriptures, you've searched the Scriptures and you have prayed over the Scriptures, you let the Gospel speak into their need and show them that Christ saves. Let your speech be gracious, seasoned with salt, appealing to the person, meeting them where they are. At the back of the sanctuary this morning, I have put, I think it's six books from our church library on evangelism. We have lots of resources on lots of different subjects. I really want people to take every advantage of our church library. Um, So there's a number of books dealing with evangelism, and I think that you would find something there that would be helpful. But you know what? Even better than the books on evangelism for long-term shaping you as a witness are the books that are about the gospel. We have lots of those too. Like, What is the Gospel? by Greg Gilbert. I highly recommend that book. I've read it several times with people in sit-down, read-aloud settings. It's been good. But even better than that, as these books explain Jesus, is the one book, the source where Christ lives. It's the Bible. We must know Christ in the Word of God. Press into Christ through the Scriptures so that His Word abides in you. And Christ Himself abides in you. And you abide in Him. For when we know Christ fully, we will freely make Him known. We won't be able to contain Him. And through our lives and with our lips, we will be faithful witnesses of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's your calling. That's our calling as a church. Let's pray. Father, we love you, Lord. We love how the gospel has come to us, your grace, amazing us, that you would love us though we are desperate sinners. No hope outside of you. Nothing in us to make us attractive. But you loved us. Even when we were yet sinners, 
Christ died for us. And Lord, by your grace alone, not by works, but by faith, we have received the gospel for ourselves, the good news. We're saved. We're forgiven. We're redeemed. We're your children. We have now eternal life already. Father, we are also witnesses to what you have done for us in Christ. Make us bold witnesses, much bolder than we have ever been. Help us as we want to grow in every area. I pray that we would also grow in this. I pray that Jesus would transform us so profoundly that the transformation can't possibly stop with us. Help us to spread the word. I pray that we would spread it together. I pray, Father, that there would just, there would be a, just a whole evangelism way of life at Alls Chapel. For that, Lord, we can't do it on our own. Thank you for giving us each other and thank you for giving to us your Holy Spirit. Fill us with your Spirit. And may we know Christ so well that we just love and we can't help to make him known. Thank you and praise you for your work in us and through us. In Jesus' name, amen.